Good evening. Tonight's reading is in four parts. We're going through 2 Samuel 15 to 17. And the first section starts on page 319 at verse 7. So 2 Samuel 15. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Gesher in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord makes, takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went it quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahitophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. We move on to verse 25. Then the king sent to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimaaz with you, and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit where the people used to worship God, Hushai the Archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, Your Majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So Hushai, 
David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. Now please turn to chapter 16, verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Then Hushai the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king! Long live the king! Absalom said to Hushai, So this is the love you show to your friend. If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? Hushai said to Absalom, No, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom shall I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I served your father, so I will serve you. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself quite obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. But Absalom said, summon also Hushai the archite so that we can hear what he has to say as well. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men. They are fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he is hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. So I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Hushai told Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, but I have advised them to do so and so. Now send a mass message at once and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the wilderness. Cross over without fail, or the king and all the people with him will be swallowed up. 
Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and inform them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left at once and went to the house of a man in Baharim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered corn over it. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the two climbed out of the well and went to inform King David. They said to him, Set out and cross the river at once. Ahithophel has advised such and such against you. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. David went to Mahanaim and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. It's lovely to see you again, having been back uh, away for a couple of weeks. Um, very, very enjoyable to see all your smiling, some rested faces. Seems like the weather's been all right in London from the looks of you lot. That's good. It wasn't in Cornwall, I can tell you that much. Um, anyway, anyway, uh, before we get into this uh, fabulous next instalment of The Life of David, um, I must read some bands of marriage. So, I published the bands of marriage between Munza Omar Wehbe of St. George the Martyr with St. Alphage and St. Jude, and Tess Elise Marianne Carroll of St. Anselm's Church, North Lambeth. This is the first time of asking if any of you know any reason in law. You're right, it is the third, isn't it? (laughs) Just checking you're all awake. This is the third time of asking if any of you know any reason in law why they may not marry each other, you are to declare it now. And so I can now officially say that while reading out the bans, a number of people objected in church. (laughs) This was a little bit different. Let's pray, and if you want to turn up 1 Samuel 15, we are going to work our way through it. Lord God, the story is interesting, uh, thrilling, um, strange, but our great need is not to uh, listen to interesting stories. It is to know more of the God in whose hands we live, and so we pray that you would help us to, to see through your work in history to your character that we might know you, that we might trust the Lord Jesus, that we might live lives certain of your goodness. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I wonder if uh, you could point to a time in your life when you say, God, God did that. No question. God was involved. God took action. I have no question in my mind that God was involved in my life at that point. Uh, maybe... Maybe something clearly springs to mind when I mention that. Maybe nothing does. Maybe you just think, I don't think God's had anything to do with my life. Maybe you don't believe in God at all. 
But when we think of, <clears throat> of God's involvement in our lives, we, we tend immediately to think of something dramatic. You know, the time he split the Red Sea when I was there. Um, the, or perhaps more likely for us, that, oh, you know what? There's no medical explanation for that healing. None at all. Or, hey, look, <laughs> that voice came from somewhere. Or, or perhaps, look, I know it's a coincidence, but it just is such a colossal coincidence that I can only see the hand of God in what happened then. Well, 2 Samuel 15 to 17 encourages us to have a far bigger and yet at the same time a far more intimate view of God's involvement in our lives. What we're going to see here is a God who is not distant and then every now and then intervenes in weird miraculous ways but a God who is intimately involved and at work in the ordinary detail. A God whose work is usually unseen but is never absent. And this is very important. It means that we can trust that God is with us when life feels stressful and chaotic or when it feels like it is all just down to me and I just don't see how it's going to happen. It is also the opposite end when we perhaps think, hey, look, my life doesn't matter to God. When I just think, you know, I can just get on with my life. God doesn't really care what's going on. Because if, if I have the former, the former perspective, I only see God in, in, in dramatic things. I think the, the truth is that for most of us, we're, we'll end up being a bit afraid and intimidated because we'll feel like God isn't really with us. He is very distant and not very involved. And so when life presents problems that are bigger than us, which happens quite a lot, let's be honest, well, we'll be afraid because, well, I'm just not that confident God's going to show up will be the undercurrent feeling. Or, like I said, the the other perspective, if I think, look, God just just isn't interested in my life, the danger is I think my life doesn't really matter to God. He's, He's just not that involved and not that interested. And it just becomes a little bit easier to give in to sinful temptation because, well, I don't think my life really matters to God. I don't think he's that bothered what I get up to with my boyfriend, girlfriend, what I, decisions I make ethically at work, whatever it is. We can just convince ourselves it doesn't matter. And 2 Samuel 15 to 17, it, it, it teaches a number of things, but one of the big things it teaches us is that God is involved in everything in our lives. He's not absent. He's with you in everything. And that should give us confidence of his help. It should also make us realize that our lives matter to God. Right, let's uh, let's see how we get there. Uh, Firstly, the story so far, I know there's been a number of comings and goings over the summer, a number of people away helping at kids' camps or on holidays. So let's just um, reorientate ourselves with a quick recap. So as we've seen, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, or if you're Scottish, 1 and 2 Samuel, they teach the history of how God took his people from the misery of anarchy to the blessing of a godly monarchy where all the people would flourish in around 1000 BC as God uh, selected and anointed his man David and put him on the throne. And God raised him up so that all the people would flourish. And then God promised David something greater than just to be king. He said in 2 Samuel 7, we saw, look, David, your kingdom is going to be different. It's going to be an eternal kingdom. You'll have a son who will reign forever, David. Now, David is the very best of God's people, but everything unravels. And if you're here for the last three weeks, you'd have seen that in horrific detail. 
as David takes another man's wife in 2 Samuel 11 and then murders the husband to cover it up. And having sown such miserable wickedness, he reaps the whirlwind in his own family with incest and murder in the chapters just before this. And now the murderous son, Absalom, seeks to take the throne by force. And we'll see, the the narrative we're going to see is how God frustrates the coup. And then we're going to think about what that means for us today. So you've got a number of points on the sheet uh, to help you uh, work your way through. So firstly, God fulfills his purposes in spite of the wicked plans of sinful rebels. Now, God has chosen David. And God has promised David that he would be king. And that promise has been tested. We've seen that. It's been tested by external enemies like the Philistines. It was tested by the rival king Saul. And it was tested most recently by David's own sin. Would David really reign in spite of those threats? But now in his old age, he faces the threat of Absalom and Ahithophel, the A-team. And they are quite an impressive pairing. You've got David's most impressive son and his most trusted and gifted counsellor come together to form this coup. If you're a betting man, you put money on them coming out on top. Of all the threats I think that David faces in his 40 years, this is the one that's most likely to see him taken off the throne. David is tired, he's old, and at some point one of his sons is going to take over. So why not this one? Now, pause. you might think, so what? You know, we always say, don't we, that God... God works throughout history. God works in spite of people being sinful. So, so what if David gets knocked off the throne and absolute rules? You know, God can work whatever, can't he? Well, that's true. But actually, everything is at stake here. Because God has promised David that God would establish his throne. And God promised that he would raise up a son who was worthy to build the temple for God. 1 Chronicles 22, 8 says, there's got to be a man, a son without blood on his hands. Vain, scheming, power-hungry, murderous Absalom cannot be the man who will build God's temple. And so at stake here is not just, well, which of a couple of individuals happens to be on the throne. At stake here is, can God establish his kingdom? Will God keep his promises? Everything is up for grabs, actually. Okay, let's get in. So the A-team, they've got everything going for them. If you, um, where we dived in at 15.7, before that, for the six verses before, it's recorded how Absalom has spent four years building up his popularity in Israel by sowing division between the tribes and blaming it on David and uh, by fermenting dissatisfaction with David's rule. And by the end, we're told in chapter 15, verse 7, that Absalom has stolen the hearts. uh, uh, Verse 6, he's stolen the hearts of the people of Israel. Now, Absalom is popular. He's loved by the crowds. He looks great on camera, and he gives brilliant speeches. And so what you have is a man who is a far more attractive prospect for king than decrepit dad David. If you want a king, Absalom's your man. And he's supported by Ahithophel, who is David's most trusted counsellor. He's an advisor um, so brilliant that we read in 1623, in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. And the coup is very well planned. Uh, They launch it in Hebron. 
Now, um, Hebron, which is a, just a place in Israel, it may not mean much to us, but if you remember back, this is where David's kingship began, where he first reigned. And cunningly, he has, uh, as we read, 200 of the good and the great invited to this, this great feast, 15 verse 11. They're there innocently, but as the heralds ride out to proclaim, Absalom is king, word gets out that Absalom is king and he's reigning in Hebron and, and there's this great gathering of all the great and the good. I mean, all the generals are there and the priests and the magistrates. Parliament has sent all its senior dignitaries to everybody. It looks like, oh, everybody's in. It's a brilliant strategy. It's got Ahithophel's fingerprints all over it. And we start to see quite how savvy Ahithophel is in brutal terms at the end of chapter 16. He tells Absalom at the, at the end of chapter 16, as Absalom arrives in Jerusalem, verse 21, sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you've made yourself obnoxious to your father and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. He says, look, sleep in public with your father's concubines, like his harem. It's the equivalent of what William the Conqueror did in 1066, last time we were invaded, very proud boast. But last time, uh, what he did was he was very worried about the invasion. And so he lined up the ships on the shore and burned them. There's no going back, boys. You'd better fight. And this is what his advice is. Look, you do something like this, something so grotesque and offensive, such an obvious statement that, I'm now the king, his harem is mine. Something that's so utterly unforgivable. No one's going to think there's any chance of, of you know, backing out now. Everyone's going to be all in. It's wicked. I mean, we are talking about the rape of 10 women here. But Ahithophel's shrewd. He has no morals, but boy, is he clever. And his plan of attack in chapter 17 is brilliant. So, as we saw in the reading, Ahithophel um, says, 17.1, look, choose 12,000 men, set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he's weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. Strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. Quick surgical strike, just take out David. He's tired, he hasn't had time to gather his forces and he'll be dead before anybody's worked out what's going on and before anyone's had a chance to rally support for David. And by that point, where well, you're on the throne, you're David's son, it's a fait accompli. Absalom is the ideal candidate for king and Ahithophel is the perfect advisor. This is just an unstoppable plan. And yet it is stopped. And by the end of chapter 17, Ahithophel is swinging on the end of a rope. And a chapter later, Absalom will be swinging from a tree as well. God's enemies cannot frustrate his plan to establish his kingdom. As we've seen again and again, as we've worked through 2 Samuel, this is not just random history from way back then. David is a type, a shadow, a forerunner who points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus whose reign will never be frustrated. For 2,000 years, the mightiest human forces and the cleverest human plans have sought to overthrow Jesus Christ and to destroy the church. 
and for 2,000 years they failed. We humans will never be able to defeat God's plan to establish his kingdom of justice and love in Jesus Christ. Neither the Roman emperors of the first century nor, well, nor the communist dictators of the 21st century can outmaneuver or overpower the God who created the whole universe. God fulfills his purpose. Doesn't matter how mighty the rebel forces against him are, no one can stop God fulfilling his plans. That's the first thing. But the second thing to notice is how it is that God does it here. And again, the interesting thing so often in the Bible is what is not said. David uh, doesn't say, I have the promise of God and just sit on his throne in Jerusalem waiting for the lightning bolt to strike Absalom. He flees, chapter 15, verse 14. And then he deploys secret agents, uh, the sons of the two high priests, to ensure he's warned of Absalom's plans. The sons of Zadok and Abiathar will be his eyes and ears. And finally, he sends Hushai to try and frustrate Ahithophel's plans. And actually, that's the real focus of this whole section is the clash of the counsellors. Will Absalom follow the genius plan of Ahithophel or can Hushai turn the mind of the would-be king? This is how God works his salvation for David. And I don't know if you noticed as we work through chapter 17 how Hushai does it, but he uses all his shrewdness and insight into Absalom's character to convince him, eh, don't follow Ahithophel's plan. If you like, Ahithophel focuses on the plan, Hushai focuses on the man. He knew Absalom was vain. He knew Absalom believes that all the people love me and want me as king. And he probably knew too that there's going to be a little bit of fear beneath the bravado because after all, the only person Absalom has struck with a sword was an unsuspecting brother, whereas David struck down Goliath when he was a boy. So wisely, what he does, well, he acknowledges, verse 7, chapter 17, verse 7, he acknowledges the wisdom of Ahithophel, even as he opposes him. Oh, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. And then he appeals to Absalom's oversized ego and sows seeds of doubt with his colorful language. I mean, Ahithophel's advice, which we just looked at a moment ago, it's, it's brief, it's punchy, it's, look, it's urgent, look, look, go, now. There's no elaboration. It's, look, this is the opportunity. Strike now, go. Job done, David. It's very different with Hushai. He uses colourful language and he paints a picture. Verse 8. You know your father and his men. They're fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father's an experienced fighter. He'll not spend the night with the troops. Even now he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, oh, there's been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt with fear. For all Israel knows your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. So I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. Absalom, why risk an early mishap against David's seasoned warriors in the wilderness he once called home? No, no, no. Call the whole nation out to war, Absalom. 
Imagine the scene, Absalom, with the whole of Israel gathered and you riding out at their head. Imagine it. No question there'll be anything other than an absolute crushing defeat for David and his pathetic little band of loyalists. And you'll have been the man at the head of the army with all Israel cheering you on. And so Hushai wins the room. But it's interesting, isn't it, that even after Absalom has ruled in verse 14, the advice of Hushai is better than that of Ahithophel. Hushai doesn't rest. Verse 15, Hushai told Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such. I've advised them to do so and so. Now send a message at once and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the wilderness. Cross over without fail, or the king and all his people will be swallowed up. He sneaks out and and says, look, just in case Absalom changes his mind, get out of town quick, cross the Jordan, hide. And so the priests tell their sons and there was that other scene of high drama when they're seen by Absalom's agents in 17, 17 to 19. But this quick thinking woman covers, puts them in a well and covers the top and pours grain over it so no one can tell. And so they make it to David at the ford and he and his supporters make it across before nightfall. So God does indeed frustrate the advice of Ahithophel and protect his anointed king. But how does he do it? He works through human means. He doesn't send a lightning bolt, he sends Hushai. David is saved as he plans and prays, as Hushai schemes and persuades, and as the spies dodge Absalom's guards to inform him. And there is genuine tension and drama and jeopardy in these chapters because that's the lived out reality. You know, you really feel as you read uh, Hushai and Ahithophel's debate in chapter 17 that you can almost feel the sweat trickling down the back of Hushai's neck as he, as he tries to convince Absalom. But God is working through it all. He's just working in unseen ways. But God is working just as surely as if he had sent a lightning bolt, and struck down Absalom. If the events of this chapter are are like a glove, then God is like the hand inside the glove. Can't be seen, but utterly in control. Now, before we think about how we should live in the light of this, I want to point out something very important which didn't come out clearly in the reading. There is something lurking behind this text, which you get if you've if we'd read the whole of 2 Samuel to to build up to this, but I decided that on a warm summer's evening that might be a bit much. If you'd done so, you would realise this is all David's fault. The prophet Nathan warned him in chapter 12, verses 10 to 12, that his wicked sin in taking Bathsheba and killing her husband would lead to misery and rebellion in his own family. He is responsible for what's happening here. And actually, interestingly, he may even be responsible for Ahithophel's treachery. Because unless his, name is, his son's name is a coincidence, Ahithophel was probably Bathsheba's grandfather. So you wonder, was his turning on David a result of his anger at how David took his granddaughter? But certainly this whole section exposes how weak, how compromised, and how vulnerable David becomes because he sinned. Okay, so why point that out? I point it out because I think 
that one of the things that more than anything else makes us doubt God can be involved in our lives or can fulfill his good purposes for us is when we've messed up our lives through our own sinful choices. We can perhaps understand how God could be involved in our lives in spite of other people opposing us and seeking to harm us. But we believe the devil's lie that our own sin is a totally different matter. We, we kind of think that certain messes just put us outside beyond the workings of God, the divorce, the abortion, the prison sentence, the particular pattern of sexual sin. Yeah, look, it's one thing for God to still be involved in my life when everything's a mess, but not when that mess has been caused by me disobeying him. But this section of 2 Samuel reassures us that even when the misery and mess of our lives is our own making, Even then, even then, God is at work. Even then, God is fulfilling his purposes. Even then, God is establishing his kingdom. And so if that is you, turn back to God and serve him with hope and expectation. It's never over when the God of resurrection is involved. Okay, what do we do with with this section? The first thing I want to say is expect providence, not commentary. Now, we know what God is up to in this chapter because the narrator tells us in chapter 17 and verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. God's word tells us God didn't tell David. David lived in the danger and the tension. That's how it is for God's people. We live without God's commentary on our daily lives. God is not in the regular habit of explaining, this is why this is happening and this is what's going to happen later. We're called to live by faith. Instead, what we have is hundreds and hundreds of pages of history in the Bible. Hundreds of years covered, showing us God is in control of everything. And God works everything from the availability of parking spaces to the outcomes of great battles to establish his kingdom and to bring his children safely home. In other words, instead of explanation, we have providence. Providence is the word Christians use to describe the summary or to summarize the teaching of Scripture that God is involved in everything that happens. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith explains it this way. I think it'll appear on the screen. Um, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Now, let me tell you why this is really, really good and, and why it is that these chapters are so helpful. I think what we see here is that God is far more deeply involved in our lives than we sometimes realize. Because I think many Christians, I think certainly for myself, I'd assume for many years, God is basically like a, a relaxed parent at a children's playground. Kind of sat at one side of the playground, vaguely aware of where the child is, but certainly not helicoptering, not... You know, not checking whether precious Tarquin is you know, safe on the slide, but just, you know, aware of what's going on. 
not really involved unless something goes wrong and then they dash in and, and you know, sort things out for a moment. But basically, letting little Tarquin get on with it. And we think God's like that. He kind of keeps a benign eye from a heavenly distance on what's going on. But we basically get on with our lives and God's not really involved except for some particular moments, like when he splits the Red Sea for the Israelites or or when there's a miraculous healing. Then God has dashed in because he needs to sort something out. But the rest of the time, he just lets things tick on independently. Or maybe we think uh, God is really involved in the lives of some people, but other people like us, you know, every now and then he just checks, they're getting all right. Mm. Oh, you know what, whatever. Uh, This this person's important. They'll be all right. We, We kind of think God's like that with us. But 2 Samuel 15 to 17 teaches something far better. God is a God who's involved in the detail, who is at work when you can't see him, who is at work in what seems like very banal ways, the timing of David bumping into Hushai, the state of mind of Absalom when he hears the two two plans, the amount of spare grain that happens to be in this woman's courtyard when the two spies have been spotted. Everything that happens in every second of every day of your life is an outworking of God's sovereign will. God is never distant from the detail of your life. That is a wonderful thing. God is never distant from the detail of your life. I guess uh, most people here have probably been on a plane. And I remember the first time I flew, age 13, looking at a 520-ton jumbo. And you do think, golly, how does that thing ever get off the ground? Now, my dad, being an aeronautical engineer, explained it to me um, in aeronautical engineering terms, none of which I understood or made any difference to my confidence to get on the plane. It's the truth. Just not wired that way. But I felt pretty relaxed about getting on the plane partly because I was a teenage boy and you just don't really care about these things. But also, the main reason I felt relaxed about getting on 520 tonnes of aluminium and thinking it would fly is, well, if you live in an area like London, you just see planes flying overhead all the time. It's not that I understand the technical explanation of how it happens, but you just see it all the time. You just get used to thinking, it kind of works. It just works. Now, there will always be an element of mystery to how on earth does a sovereign almighty God get himself involved in the lives of humans while we are rational and responsible moral agents making real decisions? How do those two things fit together? The truth is there's always going to be an element of mystery about it, partly because it's not like anything else. And that's why the Bible has all of this history. That's why the Bible in part has chapters like these. They're like the planes flying across the sky. You barely even notice how often in the Bible ordinary things are being used by God to achieve his extraordinary purposes. But we just get used to the idea it works. And the aim is that we will trust God with our lives because we've seen so many stories in the Bible, so many historical accounts of how God was involved in unseen ways, working his purposes out, that we're willing to get on the plane and trust God ourselves. And that's what we should do. We should trust him and we should act. In the light of God's control of all things and of the way he works through ordinary humans, we should lean in trust on him. And we should work very hard using the skills and resources he's given us. 
We trust and pray and we plan and act. Which is what David does. He prays, chapter 15, 31, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And then he sends out spies and briefs his agent, Hushai. He trusted God as he prayed and he trusted God as he took action. Paul encourages us to do in Philippians 2.13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So practically, perhaps we pray, Lord, please would you save my parents, my brother, sister, my friend. But that doesn't mean we then sit on our hands and do nothing. We pray for God to save them and we seek to speak to them about Jesus. We pray the Spirit will open their eyes and we work hard at finding good biblical answers to the questions that they seem to ask. We pray they would put their faith in Jesus and we gently persist in inviting them to church to hear about him. Here is a chapter or two of good news. Good news that if you put your faith in Jesus... You can know with confidence God is at work in every detail of your life, in every moment of your day, to establish his kingdom and to bring you safely home so we can keep going, trusting him and enjoying the thrill of being involved in serving him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that um, our lives are not meaningless or unimportant and you are not distant from the detail. That you are involved in all the ordinary small things to work out your plans. Help us, we pray, to see you involved and to live with the confidence and the holiness that comes from believing that your eyes are on us and your hands are involved in our lives. Father God, help us to trust you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.